was in my car driving to my job at Covenant Seminary, and uh, they interrupted to say between songs that uh, somebody had flown a plane into one of the towers of the World Trade Center, and I, at the time, thought, well, that's dumb. And I was picturing some little single-engine Cessna running into a tower because they weren't paying attention, you know, maybe it was a some tourist wanting to get a good up-close shot, see if you could scare somebody inside one of the offices. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. And then I remember getting to work, and word started to trickle in that something had hit the second tower as well. And then, you know, what's, what's going on? And then I'm finding out that they were actually big jumbo jets loaded with passengers and loaded with fuel. And I remember going up to the conference room in the seminary where there was a television, picture tube TV, uh, 15 years ago, and watching as one of the towers collapsed. And it was a day of phone calls and emails. My dad worked uh, with the Department of Defense by the Pentagon. Um, uh, a co-worker of mine had a brother in one of the World Trade Center towers. He worked there. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, and as the story unfolded, the thousands of people who lost their lives in New York and Washington and in a field in Pennsylvania, and it became evident that the motivation behind this was religious a desire to glorify God by taking your own life and the lives of others, civilians, to pass through golden gates into a garden of paradise with your 72 virgins, you would kill thousands of people, all for the glory of God because of the impending day of judgment. Friends, Jesus, on this 15th anniversary, is going to give us a different vision of Judgment Day, a different vision of true religion and of what pleases God, a different vision of what it takes to pass through those gates into a real paradise. This is going to conclude our series on Matthew. Uh, We may pick up Holy Week again during Holy Week, Um, but we're at the end of the kind of extended teachings of Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin in verse 31 and read through verse 46 as we ask what Jesus has to say about the judgment day of God. In your pew Bible, if you want to follow along, we're on page 1542. These are the very words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, 
and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whoever, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he'll reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of these, least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What is Jesus saying? What's he trying to get through to us? First point, Jesus is saying, at the final judgment, I will be the judge. Did you pick up on that detail? He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and everyone will be brought before him, and he is the one who will separate between heaven and hell, between blessing and cursing. Jesus has already identified himself throughout this gospel as the Son of Man, that, that figure spoken of by the prophet Daniel centuries earlier, who, whose rule will be eternal, who walks before the Ancient of Days, who will be worshipped by all the nations of the earth. And Jesus is saying, I am he, and I am the final judgment. I am going to be the judge. Yeah, you look at Jesus throughout the gospel, how he's claimed to forgive sins, something only God can do. How he, he says that he will grant eternal life, even here in this passage. How he's declared in the past that God's presence is his presence. And his presence is the presence of God's kingdom. Uh, he's taught that the attitude that people would take toward him, toward Jesus, he's saying, the attitude you take toward me is what will determine your eternal destiny. He's claimed implicitly to be divine throughout, to identify his actions as God's actions. He's taught truth with his own authority. He never used footnotes as rabbis did. He performed miracles in order to show that he has control over creation itself. He's received worship from infancy when Magi came and worshipped him all the way up to the very end of this gospel when his disciples will, will be some of them afraid and some of them doubtful, but most of them will bow down and worship him. He, he's assumed that his life was a pattern for others, that he's a, a divinely authoritative life form that others must emulate. He's applied to himself Old Testament texts that describe 
God, and in several of his parables, he indirectly identifies himself as the father or the king who in the parable represents God, and yet here he is being as explicit as he has ever been, saying, I, this Jewish rabbi in first century Palestine, am the one that you are all going to face one day, and I will be there in the glory and splendor of God. I will be on God's throne. I will be granting eternal life, and I will be condemning, and I am the one who will separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus is here claiming to be more than a prophet, to be the biblical Messiah, and ultimately to be God himself. And he says he's going to be the one who condemns those who are lost. How can a God of love, you ask, condemn someone? It's a question that really all of us struggle with at some level, you know. And yet the majority of biblical references to hell and eternal condemnation are actually references from the very lips of Jesus himself. The only one who actually would experience hell on the cross, would experience separation from God, would experience God turning his back on him and rejecting him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken in our place. The only one who would taste that cup for us and drink it to the dregs is the one who nevertheless warns humanity of the reality of coming judgment. How could a good God send somebody to eternal judgment uh, for their sins? Uh, From Jesus' perspective, if you can struggle with me on this, uh, hang in there a little bit to try to understand the perspective Jesus comes from uh, in line with really the rest of Scripture for Jesus. Uh, the notion of God being a judge and, and condemning is, is integral. It's bound up in the goodness of God himself, the goodness whereby God is good in relation to himself. Uh, it's not an issue of God lacking love, but as us lacking love and God in his love and his goodness and his perfection not being able to be in the presence of that which is evil. Indeed, if you think about it, if you spend your entire life wanting to get away from God, wanting to keep God at a distance, not wanting to be in his presence, and the definition of heaven is the presence of God. And folks, if you don't want God in this life, you're not going to want him in the life to come. Why C.S. Lewis said that ultimately everybody gets what they want. Those who want God end up in his presence, and those who their whole life are trying to push him away and keep him at a safe distance, they're going to get that safe distance. And it's what Jesus here describes as condemnation. He sends them away, depart from me. That itself is the curse. Uh, But it's because of God's goodness that this comes. About once a year, I dust off a sermon illustration, the story of the good policeman. It's been over a year. We're going to dust it off again. The story of the good policeman basically goes like this. The good policeman is is in his cruiser. We'll make it out on King's Highway. And and he sees off in the distance, there's a, a, a nun, older lady, black habit, wearing her habit as was her habit. And she has baked cookies for uh, uh, some uh, uh, poor, impoverished, orphan children. 
and she hasn't eaten any of the cookies herself because she's been fasting and praying for the last three days for racial justice in St. Louis. But, but mother, we'll call her Mother Mary, is, you know, she's in her nun costume. She's got her cookies. She's trying to cross King's Highway in order to catch a bus because she doesn't have a car because she sold her car to help a child get a, a kidney transplant that was much needed. But she's a really wonderful lady, uh, you know, consecrated life, standard ordinary nun stuff. And, uh, and a good policeman's watching her, you know, cross the street to get her bus to take the cookies to the, to the poor, struggling, uh, hungry, orphan children. And, uh, and as he's watching this pickup truck uh, with a big Confederate flag in the back screeches to a halt right in front of the nun. And, and out pop three really huge, big, burly kids who, who've joyrided this truck from someplace outside High Ridge. And they get out and they grab the little old lady, the poor little nun, Mother Mary, and they take her and they shake her. And they, one of them starts rustling through her purse and one of them knocks the cookies all over the ground and they're all over that right lane heading northbound on King's Highway. And, and then they shove this old woman to the ground and they start kicking her and they start punching her. And they start pulling her hair out and ripping her scarf off her head. And they start mocking her and saying cruel things. And they're just vicious to her. And then one of them, you can hear, you know, from a distance as they kick her, you can hear her bones cracking and breaking. And the good policeman watches and he sees as one of them pulls out a switchblade and presses its icy, hard, cold steel up against her throat. And then does the unthinkable. The good policeman sees this. And he turns his siren on and he screeches his, his, you know, out into traffic. And, and he goes and, and the three young men see this cop car coming. And they're jumping back in their pickup. One of them's in the back. One of them's going through the window. They're going to tail it back out the high ridge as fast as they can. But the good policeman goes and he, he pins them in with his cruiser. And he gets out of his vehicle and he reaches in through the window. And he sticks his hand in and he says, Hi, I'm the good policeman. And I want you to know that I love you. Now, what's wrong with the story of the good policeman? Is it a good policeman? Could goodness and authority watch the cruelest evil and injustice and not put an end to it and not bring judgment? and not bring consequences. He's not a good policeman at all. He's a cowardly, weak, empty, meaningless policeman who's not doing his job because God's goodness itself says that I cannot stand in the presence of evil. I cannot allow it to be unresolved. I cannot allow it to stand forever. It must be dealt with. In this case, those who don't want closeness with God, get what they want. And they're sent away. It's about God's goodness in relation to himself, but it's also about God's mercy and goodness toward victims. What do you say to the victim of abuse who shows up with the black eye, controlled, manipulated? What do you say to the battered spouse? What do you say to nine million victims of the Nazi Holocaust? What do you say to victims of the Islamic State? What do you say to victims of the Orlando nightclub bombing, to all those throughout history who have been subject to humiliation and degradation and cruelty and injustice? Adam Jones says it this way. He says, the backbone of hope for the oppressed 
is the confidence that God is going to take care of it. That God will either judge them with his wrath or judge them with merciful conversion. But either way, God has got it. Scott Saul says it this way. He says, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids. Who will once and for all remove the bullies and the perpetrators of evil from his playground. He says, those who cannot or will not appreciate this have likely enjoyed very sheltered lives and are therefore naive about the emotional impact of oppression and cruelty and injustice. Now think about that. Would you want unchanged and unrepentant bullies and abusers stalking your children in heaven forever? Would you want abuse to continue forever or cruelty or hate or betrayal is your image of the afterlife that you will be in a place forever with unrepentant and unchanged people who are cruelly going to stalk you and use you and abuse you. Jesus is saying there's going to be a separation. The sheep in one direction, the goats in the other, because heaven is a kingdom of love. It is a place of goodness. It's a mercy to the sheep to protect them from evil, to protect them from harm forever. Some of you know what it's like to be hurt. Some of you know what it's like to have your life ruined, to have your hopes destroyed. Some of you have experienced human cruelty at its worst. And Jesus is saying there's going to come a day when the separation will come. And those who know God will gain a place of absolute safety, security, goodness, love, mercy, and protection. And those who would threaten them will be sent far, far away. This is about the goodness of God, his goodness in relation to himself and his goodness in relation to victims. And yet also in telling us about this now, it's about his goodness even toward perpetrators, toward those who are cruel, who are unjust. It's a heart of mercy toward the aggressors. You know, you think about, think about this in a marriage illustration. A spouse who never gets upset. A husband who never gets upset with his wife. Um, that is not necessarily a good thing. Certainly, the overjealous spouse who gets controlling is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. Some of you have that in your past on either side of it, and you know what it's like to have to repent of that and break free of that or escape from that. Uh, and yet, if you imagine a husband who uh, sitting in a bar with his wife, and his wife gets over and goes up to the bar, orders a drink, and then some like sleazy-looking guy with slick back hair comes up and puts his arm around his wife, pulls her real tight, starts whispering in her ear, and you know, maybe snuggling up to her a little bit, and they start laughing and joking, and the husband, he just sits there, and he just watches it, and says, I don't care. That's not love. A loving spouse would be angry because jealousy for what is yours is a healthy sign when guided by love. Think about a parent who watches. You know, she sits there and watches her kid in the playground, and then as she's watching her kid and kind of fooling with her phone, this black car comes up, and this well-dressed guy gets out and walks up to her children and offers them candy bars and then gets down on their level and starts talking to them and then beckons the kids over to their car, and she watches as he, you know, puts the kids, her kids in the back seat of his car and closes the car door and, and she goes back to her Facebook app. Now, wait a minute. 
she should be angry because those are her children. And she should be angry by the thought that something else would capture her kids. It's because of goodness that we see God as a judge here and as a judge who in mercy and compassion towards sinners is actually warning us and appealing to us now. Becky Pippert says this. She says, We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? She says, But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, against the lie, against the sin that destroys. She says, Nearly a century ago, theologian E.H. Glifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And hate in its final form is indifference. Jesus appealing to us. Jesus is not indifferent It's his love that drives him to judge, even to condemn. His heart is so filled with love and compassion for the victims, but also for the victimizers. And we're all ultimately both. Injustice and hate will not stand forever, he says. I will bring about final resolution. The heart of Christ filled with such love and compassion that he warns us here to come to him, to be reconciled to him, to allow his grace to redeem you and to free you and to wash you and to heal you and ultimately to change you and to change me. Jesus is saying at the final judgment, I will be the judge. Jesus is also saying that mercy to the weak will be the dividing line between heaven and hell. Look at the standard that's used to judge. Those who show mercy toward the weak are ultimately those who are saved. I think, wait a minute, Greg, uh, a little confusing here. It sounds like you're saying judgment is by works. Uh, We've already established that Jesus says that, you know, salvation is a free gift. You receive it by faith alone. Uh, And yet Martin Luther said, that while salvation is through faith alone, it is not by a faith that is alone. Twelve times Jesus repeats the act of mercy toward the weak is ultimately the standard by which God will determine who is saved and who is damned. He says, you gave me water when I was weak. I was thirsty. I was hungry. You gave me something to, to eat. I was a stranger, a refugee, and you let me in. These acts toward others, acts of empathy and compassion. What is mercy? Mercy is that reaction of of empathy, of solidarity, of heartbreaking compassion and self-sacrificial action in the face of human suffering. St. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Faith alone. He says this faith even is not... of of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Even the faith in your heart by which you receive Jesus as your Savior and gain eternal life is itself something God drew out in you and developed in you and gave you out of his love and mercy and compassion. Paul says it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works lest anyone should boast, for you are God's workmanship, God's new creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God planned in advance that we would do. 
See, it's not that faith plus works leads to salvation. It's that salvation received by faith leads to works. It affects you. It changes you. If it's not affecting you and not changing you, then you're not believing it because the same mystical union with Christ that brings new life and saving faith also sanctifies you. It changes you. It brings about a work of love for God and repentance in your heart. But notice the shocker here. Jesus is saying mercy to the weak will be the dividing line between heaven and hell. That's the shocker. What is the standard not? Did you notice what the standard is not? What would we expect? Well, I would expect perfect obedience to the revealed will of God. Anything else is sin. I would expect the standard to be loving God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength because Jesus says that's the greatest commandment or maybe the second greatest. I'd expect Jesus to say the standard is, is loving your neighbor as yourself or maybe fulfilling the Ten Commandments or reflecting the fruit of the Holy Spirit in all of your life. But it's not, that's not the standard. That's not the standard between heaven and hell. Did you notice what the standard is? It's not your rule keeping. He repeats this standard 12 times for radical, radical emphasis. It's like watching the movie Groundhog Day, for those of you who are old enough to remember. After about the third time through, you're sick of it and you want to skip to the end because it just keeps going. It's repeating itself. He says it 12 times. When did we, you know, see you hungry and offer you food? Uh, when did we see you thirsty and offer you drink? When did we see you a stranger and let you in? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? Twelve times he repeats it. Absolute emphasis that mercy toward those who are weak is the dividing line. Um, now, why is that the dividing line? That seems kind of random. And yet, that is the dividing line because that is what shows whether the gospel is actually at work in your life. How is that the case? When you see yourself as a prisoner, a prisoner of your own sin, of your own devices, and it's your own stinking fault, and you know it, and then Jesus comes with the key and lets you out, and he then steps inside the prison and locks the door so you can go free, that affects you. When you know that you are spiritually poor, you're spiritually bankrupt, there's no righteousness in you. Everything you do is with mixed motives. Nothing you do is pure. You realize, God, I am bankrupt. I do not know how to pay my bills, Lord. I cannot do it. I can't pay this debt. And then Jesus steps up and pays your debt for you. It changes how you look at the poor. You can't turn around and judge the poor for being poor when you yourself have stood up here and taken vows saying, I am spiritually bankrupt and Jesus is bailing me out. It affects you when you know that you were hungry and you were thirsty and Jesus came and fed you. When you see yourself as the one in need of mercy and you've experienced it, when that becomes your defining narrative, when that becomes who you are, when that is your story, it defines you. And you start to love people who are guilty and weak and poor and irresponsible and prisoners. It changes how you view them because you view them as one of yourself at the final judgment. The saved and the damned, the sheep and the goats will be separated, Jesus is saying, based on whether they showed mercy to the needy instead of demanding their rights. Of all the commandments, that's the one. The reason should be obvious. 
if you've come to know Jesus. Because the dividing line of mercy is what puts on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only those who think themselves unmerciful in this parable will be saved. Did you pick up on that? The damned, the goats, the ones on the left, I guess. You know, they up to the very end are demanding their righteousness. Jesus is saying, you didn't show me mercy. You didn't show me love. And they're saying, no, Jesus Christ, son of God, son of man, you're wrong. When did we ever see you needing something and not take care of you, Jesus? We would have taken care of you. Why? Because we're righteous. Look at all the things we did. We didn't do any of those bad things, Jesus. We always did good things up to the very end. They are shocked that they're going to be condemned. And they're even trying to argue with the judge of earth and heaven on judgment day and make their case based on their performance. In the words of Jesus, fall is a final condemnation. You had no mercy toward the weak. You missed my ministry to you. Your heart has remained unchanged. Get away from me. And they depart. They're not the only ones who are shocked at Judgment Day. Who else is shocked in this parable? Who else is confused and not getting it? But the sheep, the lambs of God, the ones he loves, the ones he saved. He's saying, you did all this stuff for me, and what are we up there saying? We're saying, no, Jesus, we never did any of that for you. We never helped you out. We never took care of you. We never sprang you out of jail. We never brought you anything to eat or anything to drink. We haven't done any of this. Um, We don't deserve this, Jesus. We never did any of those things for you, Jesus. We never did. We don't deserve your salvation. No, you don't, Jesus responds. But you let me do all these things for you. When you were a prisoner, you let me spring you out of jail. And when you were the refugee, uh, you let me take you in. When you were hungry, you let me feed you. And when you were thirsty, you let me give you something to drink. When you were sick, you let me stoop down and heal you at my own cost. And that got inside of you. And that affected you. And that changed you. It changed how you view the poor. It changed how you view minorities. It changed how you view uh, disadvantaged people. It changed how you view those who are sick and suffering. It changed how you view the battered wife. It changed how you view the bad parent. It changed how you view the disobedient child. It changed how you view your, your spouse. Because you've received mercy. And it's defined you. It's given you grace. It's changed your heart. It's made you merciful to others. And when you forgave your spouse... And when you took in that homeless guy, and when you provided that meal, and when you showed mercy to the lady at Schnooks whose kids were terribly misbehaving and who was incredibly embarrassed about it, and instead of judging her and evaluating her, you went up and offered to help. Yet that mercy that you showed, Jesus is saying, that was me that you were serving. That was me to whom you were showing mercy. And now I reward you. Come in. Come into my kingdom. Come in to what I've spent eternity preparing for you. Come in to relationship with me. When I was thirsty, Jesus gave me something to eat. And when I was naked, 
Jesus clothed me with his own righteousness as only one who loves would do. Jesus ultimately was damned in our place that we could go free. Jones says this, he says, you see, deeds of mercy are not the root of the gospel, but they are the fruit of the gospel. Yes, morality matters, but it's not the bullseye of the gospel. Grace and mercy are the bullseye of the gospel. And it's the only true standard that shows that a person has been changed by the gospel of Christ. Keeping rules doesn't always show that you've changed. You can keep rules if you're a really organized person with a lot of self-control and have no love for Jesus at all. And you can have great love for Jesus, but if you're just a sloppy, disorganized person, rule-keeping is not going to be in your wheelhouse very easily. And it's going to be hard, difficult, painful learning for you to do so. But that heart of mercy is the heart of the gospel. Deeds of mercy, what you do toward those who are weak and needy, is the fruit and overflow of mercy received. In the Old Testament, the high priest would take a goat, what is called a scapegoat, where we get the term. He would lay his hands on the scapegoat and symbolically transfer all the sin and guilt of Israel, all of your sins, everything you're ashamed of, the thing you don't even want to admit, that you don't even want to tell your spouse about, all of that guilt and all of that shame would transfer from Israel through the priest into the goat. And then that goat would be driven out of the city, out of God's presence, in our place, taking all of our guilt and all of our shame away so that we could be brought in. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says Jesus was crucified outside the city, our scapegoat, so that all of our sins might be carried out of the city with him, so that we might be brought in to the household of God and have eternal life. He bore our sins in his body. He carried your burdens And there is no double jeopardy with God, friends. If Christ has borne your sins, they will never be punished a second time. God is not unjust. And when Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished so that you might become a community defined by mercy. The mercy you've received from a dad in heaven who loves you, from a savior who delights in you and who's pleased with you. A Savior who then calls you to be a people of mercy to those who are weak. One of the oldest sermon illustrations in history goes back into the early centuries of the Christian church. It's a story of of a tour of the afterlife. A tour in which, uh, I don't know, sometimes it's St. Peter giving the tour, sometimes it's an angel but we'll make, it saint, we'll make it an angel. Most of us are Protestants here. Um, angel gives, you know, you die and you get this tour of the afterlife. And first the angel says, first I'm going to show you hell. Um, now, are you ready for this? It's going to be really bad. It's going to really upset you. You don't, you don't want to end up here, trust me. Uh, and he's going to go through this doorway, this portal into this room. And in this room, there is this huge table filled with turkey and ham, I guess. 
maybe the Jews don't eat that, but you know, turkey and, and ham and steaks and, and all sorts of vegetables and baked goods and chocolate, and it's all just piled up in the middle of the table, and everybody is seated on a bench on either the right or on the left of the table, and they all have gigantic spoons tied to one arm and the other arm tied behind their back. It's like, okay, that's kind of weird. It's like spoon people. Uh, giant spoons. And, 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 and they're all upset because they're reaching over trying to get some of the food, but the spoon is too long and it overshoots the table. And so no matter how hard they try, they can, they can barely push food around. They can never get any into their spoon and they're there for eternity with a feast and a banquet before them with these spoons giving them the illusion that they can have it, but they're hungry, they're starving, and the food, they can smell it, but they can never get it into their mouth. It's terrible. And the angel, or Peter, says, come through this door. I'm going to show you heaven. He goes through the door, and he looks back. And it's, it's the same room. And he's like, what is this? You're going to torture us for, forever? Did I, did I believe in Jesus for nothing? Was it all in vain? He's like, no, watch. They all have the same arm tied behind their back, and they all have the same ridiculous gold spoon six feet long strapped to their forearms. And yet as he watches, every one of them is scooping up food with their spoon, and because they can't get it to their own mouth, they're reaching across and feeding the person across from them. Jonathan Edwards says, Heaven is a kingdom of love, defined by the mercy we've received, so that we might give mercy to the weak wherever they are in St. Louis and in all the earth. Let's pray.